I just thought, you're young, you might understand. But there is new trouble. I might understand it if it had been made within my lifetime. Yes, <laughs> you're right, it's been with us for years. It might even be a rental. Elephant seals. Why don't you just buy a big new one? I don't want a big new one. But it would come with the right sockets and jacks. You could get satellite TV as well, with hundreds of different channels from all over the world. What, and abandon the BBC? I can't do that. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and this is the podcast that follows the fifth season of the Netflix series The Crown, episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved, and diving deep into the stories. It's time to focus on episode eight, Gunpowder. We pick up with Princess Diana where we left off in episode seven, as journalist Martin Bashir goes to great lengths to dismiss Diana's concerns and film the risky panorama interview in secret. But will there be consequences for Diana, the family and the BBC itself? We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't watched episode 8 yet, I suggest you do it now or very soon. Coming up on the podcast, Head of Research Annie Salzberger will tell us the shocking real events that led to the Panorama interview in 1995. It's a heck of a meeting because Bashir comes armed with everything he could possibly throw at her. Victoria Stable will tell us about her role as archive producer on The Crown. There was only five seconds of him speaking, but we did find it. Wow. That's always useful, you know. That's amazing. He does speak. (laughs) And we'll meet the actor portraying controversial journalist Martin Bashir, Prasanna Puwanaraja. And suddenly Elizabeth was there next to me. She said hello and I kind of turned around and it genuinely just sort of, it was quite startling, Mm. I think. But first, let's hear from director of this episode, Eric Richter-Strand. Episode A, Gunpowder. How would you describe this episode? Well, seven and eight is a two-parter, really. It's like one long feature film divided into two. Yeah, and this is the culmination of the story, where seven ends where you realise, okay, she is going to do this interview. And then eight is really, how did the interview come about? What how did they actually record it? And what was all the secret skullduggery that happened around it to culminate in this massive uh, nationwide event? Mm. I love in this episode as well that we get to kind of refocus a bit on the Queen's perspective. Seven's very much Diana and following her journey to this point. And with gunpowder, it feels like we get more of a the kind of Queen's perspective and where she is leading up to that moment as well. Tell us a little bit about the Queen's journey in this episode. Well, we start by seeing the Queen struggling with some old equipment, like an old television that she can't really make to work. She wants to see BBC. She and wants to watch the racing. She does. Well, she wants to watch the racing, <laughs> but I think in the first scene, she really wants to watch, you know, the news or BBC yeah. and trying to get that in there. And William is the one who's trying to help her do that because he's, you know, now living in Eton just down the road and he can come up on Sundays and have tea and, and help our granny when she needs to. So this lovely, quite domestic, intimate moment, really, between the two of them that I really that I really like. And then, of course, that is bookended by the very last scene of the episode in which we realise that the Queen is opening up for the future and mm. the cornucopia of satellite television and the modernity that you can't help, yeah. to, you can't keep it out. 
and still feeling that, you know, maybe it's not a good thing. Maybe all this new stuff is necessarily yeah. a good thing. And there's Do that we need sense. It? Yeah. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> yeah. It's lovely because it's a bit of light relief at times that watching the two of them because, you know, you forget at moments that it's the Queen and, you know, the future King and that it's, it's a granny and her grandson in the same way that any granny would get her grandson to come in and, and fix the latest piece of technology that she doesn't know how to deal with. Yeah. There's that lovely line as well where she sort of said, oh, well, with you being a young person, you know, I thought that he was like, well, if it had been made in my lifetime, I might have been able to help you with it. Yeah. I think that's a great thing as well with the writing on the show is that there's, when it's needed, they sense the kind of tone of the, each episode so brilliantly that you know when it's getting so heavy and deep that we just need that, as an audience, need a light lift. Yeah. Just to almost, because this is a heavy episode. It is. This is, because we all, most of us remember it or remember so much around it and it kind of being the start of something as well. Yeah, it's true. I like the way in general how The Crown incorporates television because obviously television is a big part of many episodes in this season and in previous seasons because it's the most, public family and everything they do is followed and covered and documented and viewed by millions of people and mm. they are sort of seeing themselves from the outside as how other people see them and that they all they constantly have to react to what television is showing about them and of course that's very much the case in this story and it's interesting as well because then you've got this lovely relationship that we watch of William and his granny. We kind of really see flourish and the importance of that relationship and the, the reliance on each other in a way as well, which is kind of nice to know that he has someone like that, I think, as well. It is. I feel like in these two episodes, you get a sense that Elizabeth, the Queen, takes a keen interest in the future of the crown, mm. basically has now moved to Eton, which is very close to where she lives in Windsor. And she can sort of take him under her wing and and just make sure that he's all right. Mm. And she learns through those meetings that maybe he's not 100% all right and he's burdened by what he's experiencing. I only discovered recently as well that the young actor playing William is in fact Dominic West's son. He is, it's Sen and West. That's weird and brilliant and awesome. It's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, we, we had another actor in the first few episodes um, who played Timothy, his name was, and he was very good, but he was just a little bit too young to be able to make that leap. Mm -hmm to follow because the season goes through several years and we ended up in 95 and he was cast for 91. So we needed a new actor and we looked through hundreds of candidates. And of course, you end up with a candidate who's actually the son of the actor who plays Prince Charles. It's completely based on merits, completely based on his performance in the auditions that he had with me and the casting agents and, and also opposite Elizabeth. He had scenes with Elizabeth and Imelda mm -hmm. where he just came across as this very perfect mix of very young adolescent boy and mature, serious man. Apparently, satellite dishes have now been installed in all the royal households. As long as they're out of sight. Plus, the specialist racing channel you wanted, like in the betting shops. Did you hear that, Mummy? Really? Look, simple instructions on all the remotes. May I see? Oh, printed in a nice, large, idiot-proof font. Well, what about the soaps? <clears throat> Not that we ever watched those. Well, 23 is UK gold. We'll be back with Eric later in the podcast. But first, let's dig into the research side of things with Annie Salzberger. So, episode eight, gunpowder. There is so much to break down in this episode. I guess a good place to start is the BBC. 
BBC is known the world over, mm-hmm. but it's interesting, I think, for people, you know, maybe not in the UK, to have an understanding of what the BBC is and how it's linked to the government and the royal family. Yeah, so the BBC is the largest national broadcaster in the world, and it's the oldest. So it starts in the 20s, and it gets its charter, its royal charter in 27. It's, you know, obviously initially radio. It's not uh, television quite yet. And then it expands to TV and digital as the technologies change. The royal charter does not mean that the corporation is in any way beholden to the sovereign. It's kind of a seal of approval from the Privy Council and, I suppose, the monarch. And it serves as a bit of a kind of constitution for the corporation. It declares that there's a public interest aspect to this company. It sets up its public purpose. It guarantees independence from the government, which is not really how it works because (laughs) there is a government department that oversees the BBC and they appoint governors governors appoint director generals, you know, so to say that there's no government influence is not exactly quite right. And there is a relationship that shifts in this time to kind of saying it's a national institution that should reflect the policy and needs of the government and the sovereign, for example. I mean, during just ahead of World War II when Neville Chamberlain is prime minister, Lord Reith, who helps found the BBC, and he is the first director general, and it's his values of to inform, to educate, to entertain, that leads the BBC even today. He believes if the people elected the government, then the government is essentially for the people and has the same values as the people, then the BBC should reflect the government. And you're like, well, that's kind of censorship. So he, <laughs> he wouldn't allow things to go on air that would stand in the way of government policy or question it until war broke out and the government declared, yes, okay, we are now at war. And then all of a sudden that shifted and it was about telling the truth and nothing but the truth at that point. And that's really where the BBC takes off in terms of, I think, the global understanding of it being one of the most trusted news organizations in the world. And we pay for it. No advertising. It's all a license fee by citizens. The idea is they are beholden to us, and that's what starts to shift in the 90s with their new director general, John Burt, who's in our show, who believes very wholeheartedly that the people he has to serve are the people paying the license fee, the citizens, whereas Duke Hussey, who's the chairman of the governors... He's old school. St- he's old school. He still believes in the Auntie Beeb understanding of we're going to sort of patronizingly tell you what you need to hear, and he believes very much so that the institutions of government and monarchy should work with this other national institution of the BBC. You think she'll be critical of the monarchy? Critical of Charles, certainly. Well, explain something to me. She could go anywhere in the world with this. How did you get her to do it with you? It's not with me, though, is it? It's the BBC. She's doing it with us because she feels safe, understood and protected. He's being modest. It is Martin too when he when he puts his mind to something. He can be very persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> this episode, picking up from episode seven, tells the story of how Diana came to actually film the infamous Panorama interview, which aired on the BBC's main TV channel, BBC One, in November 1995. Across these two episodes, we see the lengths that Martin Bashir went to to convince Diana to take part and even get the BBC to sign off on it. Can you tell us from your research about Martin Bashir how and why 
Diana did the interview with him in particular. What was the attraction, do you think, of Panorama being the right place for her? So initially it wasn't. Okay. She was very skeptical of the BBC because she knew that people like Duke Hussey were very pro-monarchy. I mean, ultra. His wife is the Queen's best friend and lady-in-waiting, essentially godmother to Charles and formally godmother to William. So she doesn't trust it. She thinks that anything she said on the BBC will sort of be censored or it's not a warm place for her to talk about mm. her life in any way whatsoever. She's being courted at the time by Oprah and Barbara Walters. So it takes her a little while to come around to the idea of the BBC. And there's lots of little programs. You know, she's being courted all the time by the BBC. They sort of pitch a version of what you end up seeing, which is much more focused on her charity work and defining her role in the future with a different uh, broadcaster, Nicholas Witchell. That gets changed out. A very junior person, Martin Bashir, comes in. And I think there are two reasons she ends up going with them. I think she does have the realization that the BBC is a national broadcaster. It is patriotic to go with them. Mm-hmm. But that only happens, that realization I think she allows herself to have, when Martin Bashir says to her, Panorama will hide this from the people up above. You know, Panorama is an incredibly well-respected current affairs program. It has some of the best journalists. It's one of the director general's pet projects and bringing in even better special correspondents who are more unique in their talents. So Bashir is one of those people he brings in in 1992. What Diane is going to love about Bashir is that he presents himself as an outsider. But behind that exterior is unbelievable ambition. So somehow he pitches a, let's look into the security services and see if they really are spying on celebrities and royals. And soon realizes there's not enough evidence in it for Panorama to ever take it to air because they would want concrete evidence. And that's where things get real shifty. Because Bashir works out that the best way to her is through her brother. Absolutely. Charles Spencer. So my team did a huge amount of research into this, a real forensic sort of study. And our conclusions on what happened were really bolstered by the findings in the Dyson Report, which came out in 2021. This was an official investigation into Bashir's actions when he worked on Panorama, which was commissioned by the BBC board. Now, our own research for the show started way before this came out, and it relied entirely on the publicly available sources uh, previous to this. So that's newspaper articles, books, documentaries, etc., all covering sort of whistleblowing that started in late 1995, early 1996. There was even a BBC inquiry in 1996. And it's really shocking how much information was out there already on the BBC, on Bashir's sort of manipulation, his wrongdoing in this. The BBC squashed it. I mean, I imagine it's because it was the most successful news program of the year and no one really wanted to to tarnish that success. And I want to give a little credit, if I can, to my team on this one, because it really is like, you know, the combined efforts of great investigative journalism on their parts and and just creative research. So we have Anna Basista, Anna Cardin, Sophie Badman and Nada Atea Willscroft. So here's what we know. Martin Bashir is pitching the show on security services, uh, spying on celebrities and royals. 
He knows that Charles Spencer had had an issue with possibly being bugged and also some personal material making it to the press. He had an injunction out on his former head of security. And so that's his starting point. He's like, great. I have a legitimate reason to take a meeting with this guy and say I'm exploring this issue for a Panorama episode. Again, Panorama being like the great highly revered current affairs program at the time, come in. (laughs) And what he does is he has a graphic designer who freelances for the BBC to mock up statements proving that that head of security who Charles Spencer was suspicious of but didn't have any evidence against did indeed take cash. And so he uses, it's so shocking because he's already been accused of mocking up or falsifying statements for a previous panorama he had done on Terry Venables. He claims he only mocked them up to show on screen because they didn't have them, but all the information was valid. Okay. That wasn't true. But Matt Wiesler, who is the graphic designer, he believes that's what he's doing here again, which is essentially mocking stuff up to go on screen, but it's all based on legitimate information. Mm -hmm. So he creates these two statements and he approaches Charles Spencer with them. And then he just says, and I think they're doing this to your sister too. And that's all it took. Charles Spencer calls Bashir's boss, Steve Hewlett, and says, is this guy legit? And Steve Hewlett says, he's one of my best. Yes. I don't think Steve Hewlett had any idea about the falsified statements. That was purely Bashir. So now he's got Charles Spencer on the hook. Charles Spencer then calls Diana. They have a very difficult relationship this time. And he's like, listen, I know that you're a little annoyed with me and we haven't been close, but I've had this guy come. He's from the most legitimate current affairs program. I want you to meet him. And it's a heck of a meeting because Bashir comes armed with everything he could possibly throw at her. And he already knows that she's in a bit of a a nervous state about, you know, sort of, I don't want to say paranoid because it isn't paranoid, but is she sort of in the royal family? Is she not? She's separated. She is technically, she's still doing royal duties, but they, she also knows that they kind of have no idea what to do with her. Mm-hmm. So she starts being convinced from Bashir's allegations that all of these suspicions she had that she may have aired to her private secretary, but really not many others, some close friends, were true. And the allegations range from the totally believable to the utterly absurd. And that's when Charles Spencer switches off. So a couple of allegations are like, you know, yes, your phone is bugged. Your friends are selling some information to the newspapers. You need to be cautious with them. To Edward, Prince Edward has AIDS. And he's being secretly uh, cared for for AIDS. Like, <laughs> okay. Uh, to the queen having a heart condition, she's going to die soon. So uh, that's amplifying the kind of Charles is going to be king and we don't know what to do with you element of her concerns. And then things like William has a listening device in his watch that Charles planted and your son is listening to you all the time. To finally, uh, Charles is having an affair with the nanny. So all of these things that really concerned Diana because... The nanny was very close to her sons, and she was obviously insecure about their relationship. So he says all this stuff, but what he also does is he screws up something, which is he tells the same story about her former kind of head of security that he had told to Charles Spencer about another person. Mm -hmm. Like, perfect details, exactly the same. So Charles Spencer knows after this meeting this guy's a total con artist. Get away from him. And he even apologized to her. Like, I'm sorry, Dutch. That was his nickname, Duchess, to her. Uh, you know, I'm sorry for wasting your time. Walk away. 
But Diana is already desperate to get her story out there. Even though she has in the back of her mind, this guy could be messing with me a little bit, there's enough there to keep her on the hook. And she doesn't tell Charles Spencer she's still going. Wow. And then he ups the ante every time she has a wobble. So the Charles is having an affair with the nanny, becomes Charles. And the nanny had an affair and she got pregnant and had an abortion. And here's the receipt from the abortion. I mean, Diana believed it because she went and confronted the nanny about it. Things like that. So he always knew to up the ante. And that the big one was he showed falsified statements that he potentially had made himself, showing that her private secretary... And Charles, his private secretary, were in cahoots being paid by the security services and the newspapers to provide information on her and to spy on her and track her. He's so playing on every insecurity. Every insecurity, every fear. And all he's trying to do is to get her so isolated from the people she trusted and who were there to look out for her that she wholesale moves her trust to him. And she does it. She doesn't tell a single person on her staff or her friends what she's doing. And really what we figured out, I think, is that she knew divorce was imminent, possibly. I mean, some people say that she had no idea this would trigger divorce. I think that's very naive. I think she did know. And she knew that a gag clause would likely be placed on her in those divorce negotiations. So I think this was her last chance to get her story out, her version, mm-hmm. to the public before that divorce was triggered. And this really was her version of events. Bashir may have stoked her fears, but she had a lot of agency in what she said. This is her truth. <laughs> you know, it, it's on a news current affairs program, but it is much more of a confessional. And she blurs some lines. You know, she talks about Charles's infidelity with Camilla and how it impacted her. And she mentions James Hewitt, but she doesn't talk about the other five relationships that she had whilst married. And she wades into sort of constitutional issues, Charles's fitness to be king, which I think a lot of people found to be inappropriate. Well, I expected it to be dynamite. Sensational, John. Biggest coup of our careers. Yeah, but what I've just seen could end our careers too. Not to mention what it might do to her. How did it affect the BBC's relationship with the royals? The palace would claim it did not affect them at all. But I think the fact that they moved the Christmas speech um, to ITV might be an indicator. John Burt would say, no, that was actually in the works. They were considering giving it to another broadcaster at the time. So I think it's a moment where, you know, there's still a huge royal connection. But it's a moment where I think the BBC declares, like, we're no longer beholden to you. We're still respectful, but we're no longer reverent. Anna, you filled us in on some pretty unbelievable context around the Panorama interview, but in this episode we also see the Queen herself wrestle with television in her own way. So for our feature question this episode, we want to know, did the Queen really get satellite TV installed to watch horse racing? Yes, it looks like she got satellite TV installed in the late 90s, and then pretty much all the royal residences had them by 2000. We know that the Queen Mother rented the satellite channel that you get in betting shops. It's called the SIS channel because that's how much she bet on horse racing. And she didn't bet well, I will just tell you that much. When she died, I think there was about $4 million in debt that the Queen had to cover. Not just the bets, but her lifestyle. 
Much of this episode centres around the royal family's relationship with television and we've already heard from Annie about the significance of broadcasters like the BBC in Britain. So I wanted to speak to someone whose role behind the scenes on The Crown is pivotal in getting real footage of these historical moments into the show, enriching the context and the story. Archive producer Victoria Stable. An archive producer is really an experienced film researcher, which is a bit more explanatory. I'm responsible for finding anything that has any copyright invested in it that doesn't belong to the Crown. So anything we haven't generated ourselves, be it sound or moving footage. Mm. I only do the moving footage. I don't get bogged down with the stills. Yeah. Each department, I think, does their own stills mm. research. And the research department, of course, do these wonderful visual documents using photographs. So, yeah, it's my job to source the material, get it seen by the right people, find out if they want to use it on the screen. In a way, that's the easy bit. And then you have to start the clearances. In drama, your clearances and permissions have to be 100% watertight. And I realised on documentaries how much, you know, we sort of winged it. It's a different... Documentaries have an educational side to them mm. and a news side to them. Yeah. Whereas drama is commercial and it's entertainment. And most of the time it's a kind of creative licence around how it's how that yes. footage might be used. Yes. People want script pages. They want to know context. We might have an actor standing in front of it saying, I don't like this. Whereas everybody wants their clips to shine. Yeah. We had... Uh, the Royal Family documentary, and everyone's sitting on the sofa, the Royal Family are sitting on the sofa, watching actually a fantastic bit of Tomorrow's World. It's on for about a minute and a half. Tomorrow's World is saying how one day there will be a home computer in everybody's house. It's actually a fantastic item. But um, the Royal Family, and I think it's Princess Margaret, says, you know, this is really boring. How do you expect <laughs> us to enjoy this? And Prince Philip gets cross and everything. But in fact, Tomorrow's World didn't want people saying it was boring. But of course, I mean, it was 1969. It was black and white and it was quite dry. But anyway, they said yes in the end. Did the cast approach you as well for, for you know, their research purposes? Sometimes, yes. I mean, in season five, Khalid Abdullah, who plays Dodie. Yeah. There's no footage. There's so little footage of Dodie. I certainly hadn't found anything of him speaking. Khalid sent me a random photograph he'd found online. And you could see a news camera. He was being interviewed somewhere. And I sort of worked it out long before he'd ever met Diana. He was in a court case in Toronto. And, you know, again, I was looking through old back copies of the Toronto Star and things like that. But anyway, there was, there was this court case. And the day he came out of court, I think he was just giving evidence or something, somebody interviewed him. Anyway, I got this little bit. There was only five seconds of him speaking, but we did find it. Wow. Yeah, so that's always useful. You know, that's amazing. He does speak. <laughs> Can we talk about episode eight, Gunpowder? Yes. Because this is talking about the media landscape and the change for the royals. War of the Whales, these pushes the kind of the private conflict with the public and tabloid intrusion goes into overdrive, really. It's interesting to see that kind of royal relationship with the media threaded throughout this whole journey of the crown, really, and how that's changed. Tell us a little bit about sourcing the huge amount of footage that we see in this episode, which gives such rich context. Episode eight certainly was the most challenging on this season for yeah. me. The panorama, of course, you know, had very little to do with me in that I had a copy of the programme. So that was fine. Let 
everybody get on with that, hand that over to production. And the sort of the War of the Waleses and the media war, there have been really excellent documentaries made in the last 15 years about that. And so I could just hand over the documentaries for reference. They yeah. can watch that and then they can come back and say, we're going to make a big deal about this scene. Yeah. Then I can go and see what else there is. So that's sort of that element to it. And the bit that stumped me most, I suppose, <laughs> Peter Morgan's very keen on these. He loves these international news montages. Yeah, which we see when the after Panorama yes. came out. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> They're very difficult to Are put they? together because not all countries have archives. You know, they're expensive to keep up and catalogue. Not all countries... I mean, although Diana was a phenomenon around the world and everybody would film her, mm. they don't necessarily archive things. News broadcasts, people don't see the point in keeping the newsreader. They will keep the inserts, the shot footage. Yeah. And actually now fashions have changed and we do like the newscaster because they have the urgency they can move the story along they're absolutely great the newscasters but a lot of them have been dumped and tapes have been reused it's sort of luck you don't know whether it exists or not yeah. until you ask and then you've got that brilliant scene where william's helping the queen navigate her new tv <laughs> satellite tv channels that's a terrifying scene it was always sitting there in the script one element of that that i'm most pleased with really i suppose is the beavis and butthead clip (laughs) because just to kick off i obviously had to go to mike judge who's the creator and animator and of beavis and butthead and he also does the voices and he had to get it he had to understand that obviously queen elizabeth wasn't going to be into beavis and butthead and would be fairly shocked and think it was pretty revolting. But he got that and he thought it was fun to be involved. Whereas there were other companies that, you know, I went to them because I wanted trashy, vulgar television, but you can't ask for that. You have to say, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you know. I mean, there are so many clips that go through, really, often only I know what it is. (laughs) Couldn't we just find the BBC? I was more than excited to meet the fantastic actor playing one of British television's most controversial broadcasters. I asked Prasanna Puwanaraja about his journey to being cast as Martin Bashir. It's such an iconic show, I think, first of all. As a piece of fiction, first and foremost, Mm -hmm. it's extraordinary and brilliantly produced and made and, you know... But it is kind of, it's beginning to be our living memory for more and more of the nation. And so those kinds of roles are incredibly rare, particularly as a brown person, they're incredibly rare. Yeah. To the tune of essentially them never really coming up. So nothing about this part coming up for me had ever really happened before. Playing a person who was as kind of multiply shaped I guess as yeah. this but also someone who is very much in our national story still uh, is as well still is yeah mm. so it was first and foremost it was an audition and 
There's always a kind of, I mean, they <laughs> with the audition, it sort of said, this isn't about doing impersonations, yeah. the show, you know. And I, I sort of took that to mean like it's about finding like motivations and the spirit of scenes and yeah. people. Yeah, actions. Yeah, yeah. And, like, and finding the, the reality that you can perceive within those things. And then you're sort of doing a kind of a kind of archaeological job, kind I think. Kind of sculpt in it, aren't you? Yeah, you're going like, this is what I think the bones of it are. Mm. And that's all you get. And you yeah. have to work out the sinew and everything else from that. So a lot of it is about trying to work out why things are happening. But also a lot of it is about like watching a lot of his other work. Yeah. And it's not actually how an individual sounds or how they move. Mm. It's about their strategies yeah, in, an, yeah, yeah. In, in an interview. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're a pro in this space. Like it's a kind of jousting in a way in those sorts of spaces. It's about it's like fencing. Yeah. And he is really good at it. And watching the interview again, watching his other interviews from the 90s, each interview has a moment of a pretty startling hit, I guess. Mm. And moments where also an easily expressible reality is not expressed. So he just, you know, there's a kind of hold and give, like fly fishing or something. And so it's actually kind of trying to map all of those things, really, as well as finding a physical centre. It's a sort of combination of things, yeah. But so all of that really from the audition time. And then when I got the gig, it was kind of getting into that in a very in-depth way. And then costume fittings and hair and makeup tests were, it is quite a transformation, Mm. but not in a sort of adding loads kind of way it was yeah. a, it's a sort of very strange it's really subtle yeah but really distinctive i think so yeah and it was an amazing job that the hair and makeup artists and the costume designers did uh, in particular lucy oswald who was the hair and makeup artist who i worked with every single day who spent an hour every day wow unbelievably making almost every single hair stand up on end, using a little toothbrush and a kind of black lacquer. <laughs> wow. Yeah. With the character that Peter has created from, I guess, the framework of the real person, within that you've got to find what you perceive as the motivation. You know, you mentioned that earlier. What did you see that being? I think there's a lot of things in that. Primarily, I sort of perceived it from a kind of acting point of view, just sort of going, this is about trying to acquire a target and everything that he does is in pursuit of that acquisition i think they might have gone to your brother no these are serious people Mm. that kind of change of heart is just too irrational too random which is why i think the sooner we get this done the better with regards to your character, he's either lying or manipulating the truth so much within what we see. And it's it's so interesting to watch, to try and find the truths, in a way, to try and find the real him, to try and kind of find when he's not being the person that he thinks the people that he needs to convince want him to be. What you've got to do is you've got to decide what you think the untruth is. Mm-hmm. And you've got to decide where that sits in a kind of landscape of a bigger truth and what the importance of that bigger truth is. And 
pulling against that as you like work the pistons as, as an actor yeah is what are the things holding this person back what's the drag coefficient yeah which for him is he's an outsider mm-hmm. in my perception of him he's a young person in the context of you know quite an old old establishment an old older, white yeah. established yeah. bandwidth mm-hmm. within journalism and so there's a certain amount of peddling that is always happening underneath that surface. Treading water, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's actually more than treading water. There's a motor running at, yeah. all, at all times. There's a sort of sense of at any point anyone could say, well, why? I mean, it, in fact, it is actually stated to him, like, why does she want to do this with you? Which really articulates, I think, everything that he does because that question is so sort of, I mean, it's absolutely nakedly articulated in the episodes, but it's... You know, for a relative unknown, it's weighty, isn't it? To, to, so really to land, that, to land that interview, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's a question of interest. Yeah. yeah, there's one moment where you kind of get a little flicker. I think. I mean, there are lots. It's lovely to watch and try and find those moments. But when the producer signals across the office, I had the sign off for the interview. It's like kid at Christmas, like I got the present I wanted, kind of thing. And then quickly, kind of like, okay, back in the room. Yeah, that was a very interesting day, that actually, because we all went out to Basingstoke Mm -hmm. to an office that had been dressed from scratch to be the Panorama offices. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, yeah, some people get to go to sort of Spain. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are are in Basingstoke. Yeah, yeah. Good old Amazingstoke. Love the M3. (laughs) Yeah, it was like when there was um, a moment where they sort of said, "Um, do you want to test out the vehicle that you'll be driving? I said, yeah, sure. And um, we sort of walked along this road cars. There's this really beautiful old Aston Martin there. And they were like, no, 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 it was that. And it was a white transit van. <laughs> so, yeah, that's more like it. The fact that that happened, that they kind of, you know, oh, we're just delivering our telly or our speakers, hi-fi, wasn't it? It's yeah, kind of it, it, they, were supposed to be from, they were supposed to be from Dixon's, I think. And um, that was the way of getting the equipment in. It was on November the 5th. And the feeling was the place would be empty. Has so many connotations, doesn't so it? So many connotations, yeah. And I think this is one of the things about Peter and this show is he's always running multiple horses at once. And so it's not a pair of episodes about that interview. It's a pair of episodes about unrest and about how unrest is expressed or not or how inexpressible it is, particularly mm-hmm. in positions of power when that power feels like it's under threat it's kind of brilliant to be able to weave in that legacy yeah which is provocative isn't it plus the shifts in the television broadcast landscape at that time all of those things are this kind of incredible weave it's really emotional watching her Elizabeth's performance of this on screen. It was very emotional being in the room with it, actually. Yeah. I mean, doing Um, that interview in particular. It was all up at Elstree and they'd built a set up there and we went in there for a day and filmed some sort of bits and pieces, you know, bringing the kit in and stuff. But at the start of the day, we were just sort of hovering, kind of waiting, and, and suddenly Elizabeth was there next to me. She said hello and I kind of turned around and... It genuinely just sort of, it was quite startling, I mm. think. Because, I mean, how old would I have been? You know, mid-teens? Yeah. Mid to late teens? It's there, isn't it? It's Yeah, it was, a, it was really the first kind of all-nation event 
of my life, certainly. Yeah. And of course, we've we experienced it collectively in a very different way, didn't we? It wasn't sort of in our phones, in a kind of like audience of one. It was communal. It was, it was communal. Mm. It was a you know, and so there was a kind of flooding back of something. I think. I mean, Eric actually did a snip together of the sections of the interview that we filmed to actually uh, have on the screens when the other characters were watching the interview live in the episode. Oh, wow, that's um, clever. So that, uh, you know, so that you're not there kind of making faces yeah. at a, an empty television, which is <laughs> sort of what you do every other time. So it was, it was yeah, it was amazing of him to, to, to have done it. And, and um, one of the actors watching it cried. Uh, you know, I don't want to say who because it's not for me to say, but um, I think just the emotional hit of it is is still real. What impact did the illness have on your marriage? Well, it gave people a marvellous new label to pin on me. It's crazy. I should be sent to a home. But what better way to break down a personality than by isolating it? Finally, let's go back to director Eric Richter-Strand to find out how he went about putting together this hugely emotional moment, recreating the iconic interview. Well, it's obviously the sort of the cornerstone of both my two episodes is the interview, Mm. the filming of it and then eventually the broadcast of it. And because it's such an iconic piece of historic television footage that so many people have seen and remember, it was... And challenging sort of for a director to find, okay, how do I do this? You cannot just copy it, mm-hmm. but you have to make it clearly, you know, you need to be able to see immediately what it is and feel that you are living it this time. You're not just watching Diana, you're watching how it may have been for her to yeah. experience it, right? So we made a version of that interview that was dealing with the points of our episode, mm-hmm. sort of a bit of a highlight reel where we took the points that we felt like were most important. We had to tweak them slightly verbally so we couldn't completely copy what was being said. So it's a bit of a tweak to make it just legally correct for us to use. Yeah. And then just working with Elizabeth on on how she delivers it so that she doesn't feel like she is mimicking someone but actually feeling the emotions of the script. So on the day we filmed it, one camera would be set up in the way that it captured exactly the image that you would normally expect to see in the interview because it has the same framing. And then we had our other cameras that filmed everything around it where you'd see the cameraman and you see Martin Bashir and you see the lights and you'd see the room and you can go in and add a bit of camera movement to maybe see if you can get a bit closer into the person behind the image you see on television. That was also one of the very first things we filmed, the interview was. I wanted it to be early on because I didn't want Elizabeth to be worrying about it throughout our filming. Also for me to know that we had what we needed in case we needed to go back, get something more. Yeah. And then of course, for all the scenes in which I'm filming other members of our cast watching the interview at the end of episode eight, they could actually watch some of it. They could see what they were reacting to and not just looking at a green screen, which is normally the case. And in, when Elizabeth was watching herself, when Diana is watching herself on the couch, we tried a number of different reactions that could still all feel valid. Yeah. There could be a sense of instant regret. There could be a sense of 
perhaps thinking that this could go her way, she may have done a right choice, and then eventually just feeling that she may have made a terrible mistake. And that all plays back to another scene between her and, and the Queen, which has gone just before the, the broadcast of the interview, where, where, yeah, the Queen pretty much tells her that you shouldn't do this. Your wife to my eldest son, mother to my grandsons, and a valued senior member of this family. So I defend you each and every time, loyally, emphatically, to the hilt. How did you shoot that? Because it feels almost like theatrical. It feels like a sort of mini play in a way as well. Yes, it's a beautiful piece of writing from Peter Morgan. And it is a wonderful two-hander, sort of one-act <laughs> climax in a way. Hmm. I didn't shoot that in different ways. I was pretty clear about what I wanted. And I think the actors had a clear idea of that as well. Hmm. Interesting thing in that scene for me is that Diana goes into it with a clear agenda to ask for an audience with a queen to tell her about the interview and in a way, sort of set the record straight. I had to do this and you made me do it. And in the end, she leaves that scene feeling that she probably made a terrible mistake. And the Queen is never really going to understand. Oh. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, so I love that. And it's one of those scenes where, for me, two things. For Imelda, it's finding the right tone. She needs to be stern. She needs to take control and find the right tone for her sternness and for her her, her strength mm. in a close-up. And then for Elizabeth Debicki, it's doing very little, but doing it perfectly. Just staying with her and allowing the impact of what, what Imelda is saying to land on her face. Because we've seen this lovely relationship flourish between the Queen and William, and obviously he talks about his mum and so the Queen is privy to his concerns about her and I feel like almost the Queen has that knowledge there and is slightly more gentle with her than maybe she would normally be. No, it's interesting you would interpret it that way because the Queen has no idea why Diana's asked to come and see her. She sees in the previous scene when Robert Fellows comes in and says the Princess of Wales has asked for an urgent meeting. Mm -hmm. Could it be even this afternoon? The Queen clocks William's reaction and he immediately feels like he has to go. She might have a sense that William might know what this is about or at least that he doesn't want to be anywhere near it. Yeah. So she goes into that meeting with Diana I think with a sense that this is not good news but she doesn't know what it is. She has no idea. So when Diana says I've given an interview you can immediately see that land on Imelda's face and she's going to be stoic. She's going to be okay. She's going to ask questions and she's going to tell Diana exactly what she feels. Have you told William? Not yet, no. Poor child. As if he hasn't got enough to worry about already. He's stronger than you think. I didn't say I thought he was weak. I said he's a child and has enough to worry about already. Well, I'll tell him not to watch it. Well, I hope you don't mind if Philip and I don't watch either. Monday the 20th happens to be our wedding anniversary. 48 years. Congratulations. I'm happy for you. It's all I would have wished for myself. I'm Edith Bowman and my special thanks to our guests on this episode, Prasanna Puwanaraja, Eric Richter-Strand 
Annie Salzberger and Victoria Stable. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and something else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time when we go behind the scenes of episode nine of season five called Couple 31. The Queen asks the Prime Minister to step in when Prince Charles and Princess Diana's divorce negotiations go sour. Meanwhile, newly divorced Camilla Parker Bowles begins to shape her own royal future. I can't say that word. What word? The Q word. Why? Because it's unsayable, because it's treasonous to even contemplate it. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? Standing here in this terraced house in the middle of Islington, watching someone clamp your boyfriend's car, you being queen. Look, I never wanted any of that. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts.